All right, Matthew chapter 3. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken by uh, the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and honey. Then Jerusalem and all of Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children from Abraham. Even now, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you in the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his uh, threshing floor and gather the wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending on him like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. This is God's word for us today. Thanks, Daniel. Good morning, Redemption Church. Happy New Year to you all. For those of you who are students of church history, you may know that there are several events that have happened in Christian history that are significant. We often refer to them as revivals. They've happened throughout church history in all parts of the world, and they've had a prominent role, particularly in American history. Even secular historians will talk about the impact of the Christian revivals on our culture in America. Early in American history, before we were even a country, there was the first Great Awakening in the 1730s and the early 1740s. Then there was the second Great Awakening, many other revivals similar to these. Then there were evangelists like D.L. Moody and Billy Graham who held crusades and many, many people would come to these and it it has had a profound impact on American culture. I could name many other revivals, but they are usually characterized by some common elements, like a charismatic speaker, very large crowds of people, 
lots of emotion expressed in tears and sometimes shrieks and shouts and fainting and sometimes even outbursts of joy. There's been a great deal of research, many books written about these revivals, and there's one in particular that was written by a man named Jonathan Edwards. He's very prominent in American history. He was a pastor and a theologian during the First Great Awakening. He wrote a book called Religious Affections in 1746, just after the Great Awakening, the First Great Awakening, and it swept through America and Europe. And one of his major insights was that there was not a simple diagnosis of the revival that would conclude it was either a black or a white event. But in fact, there was a mysterious mix of both positive and negative elements in the revival. Jonathan Edwards writes on page 16 of his book, he says, there is indeed something very mysterious in it that so much good and so much bad should be mixed together in the church of God. I think this interesting insight is consistent with Jesus' teachings. We're gonna see later in the book of Matthew and the parables of Jesus. He has a parable about the weeds and the wheat growing up together, and it's this picture of the kingdom of God and that there's a mix of, of the evil and the righteous within the kingdom itself, and this won't be sorted out until he comes at the end and, 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 and sorts things out. So Jonathan Edwards wrote his book to try to help the Christians of his day discern between what was good and what was bad in the Great Awakening. And he was specifically after something called true religion. We might call, what is, what is real conversion? There were a lot of people affected in the Great Awakening, but after it was all over, he said, okay, who was really converted? Who's practicing true religion? And I think we all kind of share this concern today as well, or many of us do. When we look at Christianity in America, around the world, throughout history, we see this mixture too, don't we? We see a lot of things that are really, really good, but we see a lot of things that are really bad. And so we ask questions. Why is there this mixture of good and evil in the church? What is real Christianity? How do we discern between what is good and what is bad, what is true and what is false? And as we ask these questions, we can rest assured that we're not the first one to wrestle with these questions. That in fact, these kinds of questions go back to the very beginning of Christianity as we're going to see today in Matthew chapter three. The words or the vocabulary might have been different in Jesus' day. They would talk about things like what we're gonna read, the kingdom of heaven. What is the true kingdom of heaven? How do we discern what it is and what it isn't? Who's in the kingdom of heaven? And who's not in the kingdom of heaven? And maybe the most important question for us to ask is, am I in the kingdom of heaven? So as we go back to the very beginning of Christianity today in Matthew chapter three, we're going to see that although there is an initial positive response to the preaching of the kingdom, what we might call today a revival, there is also some very serious conflict from the very beginning that sets up the need to discern the true kingdom of heaven from the false. And what we need to understand as we look at this is that Jesus is bringing a different kind of kingdom 
than was expected by the people of his day. That's why there was this conflict. And so our big idea for today is going to be simply this. Those who belong to the kingdom of heaven, truly belong to the kingdom of heaven, show evidence of repentance and a spirit-led life. Those who belong to the kingdom of heaven show evidence of repentance and a spirit-led life. So let's examine this idea from our passage in three parts. The positive initial response, the jarring confrontation, and then the divine revelation. So first of all, the initial positive response we see in verses 1 through 6. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now we're picking up the story that we started during Advent, that that, that Danny has been preaching through uh, during Advent. Chapters 1 and 2 of Matthew detail the birth of Jesus as the king of the Jews. Although, as Danny made clear in his messages, Jesus was a different kind of king than the Jews were really expecting. Now, chapter 3 picks up the story about 30 years after the birth of Jesus, and we see this man come on the scene who, who looks like an Old Testament prophet. He wears the garb of an Old Testament prophet. He's, he's eating locusts and honey. He's out in the wilderness, and he has this message. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, I've heard uh, Catholics say that the Catholic Church is the oldest church and therefore the one true church. But as a confessing Baptist, I look at Matthew 3 and I say, look, Baptists go way back to the very beginning, to the first Baptist right here, John the Baptist. Now, I say this a little bit tongue-in-cheek, but a little bit seriously, too. The word baptize means to dunk or immerse in water. And that's what John did. He was known for dunking people, immersing people in the Jordan River. I feel confident that people were not bringing their newborn infants out to the wilderness to be dunked by John in the Jordan River. The modern Baptist movement began in the 1600s after the Reformation and the translation of Scripture into common languages of people. And as people began reading the Bible, they started to say, I think we should, be adult, we should be baptizing adults who confess Jesus as their Lord. But the picture of baptism is one of cleansing. There are Old Testament baptisms. If people were unclean, they needed to be cleansed. And so they would, they would wash. They would cleanse themselves. If you're dirty, you need a bath. It's a picture of something, it's a a picture, it's a symbol of something. We as sinners, we need cleansing from our sin. And so John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. And as people were being baptized, it says in verse six, they were confessing their sins. This is often what happens in a revival. People are convicted by their sins, they confess their sins. Now, John's main message was in verse two. And it's exactly the same message that Jesus will preach when he begins his ministry in chapter 4, verse 17. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. The opportunity to belong to the kingdom of heaven is the central part of both John and Jesus' message. And the kingdom of heaven is the central theme of the book of Matthew. In fact, the the word kingdom appears 57 times in the book of Matthew, more than any other book in the Bible. And so what is the kingdom of heaven? The kingdom of heaven is a restored relationship between God and humanity. 
in which God rules, rightfully rules as king, and his blessing is restored to earth. The call was to repent or change our way of thinking, our way of of acting from being in rebellion against God, which is the default position of the human race. That's our our natural position the Bible teaches us. So we repent from being in rebellion to God to loving God and, and gladly keeping his commandments and joyfully worshiping and serving him as God. So as John began to preach this message, what we would call revival breaks out. We read in verse five, then Jerusalem and all Judea and the region about the Jordan were going out to him. Multitudes of people, I mean, everybody. He says Jerusalem, the whole city was coming out to John. So this was a major, major revival, major response. There was great expectation and longing for the kingdom of heaven. This had been promised in the prophets for hundreds of years they had been waiting for this. And so they were responding as this prophetic man, John, powerfully preached the message to them. But then we go from this seemingly positive response to this jarring confrontation in verses seven to 12. Verse seven says, but when he saw John, when John saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, He said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. John is using the strongest language here to warn them that their repentance must be genuine. They must bear fruit, or they will suffer God's judgment. John clearly refutes a common belief that the Jews of the day held and that the Pharisees and the Sadducees actually taught, and that was that the physical descendants of Abraham would escape God's judgment simply because they were Abraham's physical descendants. John says this is a false presumption, and the only way to escape God's wrath and judgment is to bear the good fruit of repentance. He even paints a picture of an ax laid at the root of the trees And he says that any tree that does not bear good fruit will be cut down and burned. So although it's uncomfortable and unpopular to point this out, it's important, if we're going to be true to the biblical message, to note that just as the kingdom is dawning with the preaching of John the Baptist and the preaching of Jesus, so is the judgment. The two are inseparable. And that is why discernment between the two is so important. And so the central question for us this morning is, what does it mean to bear good fruit in keeping with repentance? This is the central question of this passage. And one of the central questions of the book of Matthew itself that is raised right here at the beginning. Now we're gonna come back to this question in a minute. But whatever it means, John says that there is one greater than him coming who will baptize not just with water, but with the Spirit and fire in verse 11. What does it mean to be baptized with spirit and fire? Verse 12 seems to answer this question with another metaphor. Notice what it says. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So the picture here is of a farmer who's harvesting his wheat, They gather, you know, when wheat is harvested, 
the, value, the, the wheat itself, the, green, the grain is valuable, but when it's first harvested, it's surrounded by this useless substance called chaff. And in order to separate the grain from the chaff, they would use this thing, a winnowing fork. It would basically just throw the grain up in the air. As it was thrown in the air, the wheat would separate from the chaff. The chaff was really light, and the wind would just blow it off to the side. Once all the, the wheat and chaff were separated, they'd, they'd sweep up the chaff, and they'd burn it in the fire. And so John is saying, the great one coming will give the spirit needed to bear the fruit of the repentance, bear the fruit of repentance, that's the grain, or he will judge with fire those who do not receive the spirit, the chaff. This is the one revealed in our third point this morning, the divine revelation, verses 13 to 17. Jesus himself comes onto the scene. It says, Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. There's some mystery surrounding the baptism of Jesus, for sure. Clearly, he did not need to be baptized for any sin of his own. John makes this clear in the passage. John tries to prevent Jesus from being baptized. He says, look, I need to be baptized by you. I shouldn't be baptizing you. Jesus doesn't deny the truth of John's statement, but he says that by doing this, they together will fulfill all righteousness. Notice that he says, in verse 15, let it be so for now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. That's the key term. What does that mean? I think the best understanding of this is that it was God's will for John to baptize Jesus so that he could reveal who Jesus was through the baptism of John. And as Jesus and John go through with this baptism, they fulfill that will of God or they fulfill that righteousness. Now, as a side note, thinking about baptism, I think the best reason for a person to be baptized is simply an obedience to God's will to be baptized. It's, it's in some ways, when a person comes to faith in Christ, it's their first act of obedience, their first public act of obedience. It's a simple way of saying, I want to be part of the kingdom of heaven that is coming through Christ that the Father is giving us. And so you take the step of obedience to his will. What happens immediately after Jesus' baptism, after he comes up out of the water, confirms that this was God's purpose of John's baptism all along, to reveal Jesus, to identify him as the beloved son of God the Father. And this story, this, this description of the baptism is significant because it's the first time in the Bible that all three persons of the Trinity are clearly identified and involved together in one momentous act. There's the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit revealing Jesus as the beloved Son of God. This divine identification was a keystone event in the life and ministry of Jesus. In the final week of Jesus' life, before he went to the cross, these same religious leaders came to him and questioned his authority. And they asked him, who gave you the authority to do the things that you're doing, to say the things that you're saying? And Jesus referred back to this event. He referred back to John's baptism, and he asked them a question. He said, was John's baptism from, from God, or was it from men? Now, they didn't answer his question for political reasons, but they did answer his question. They said they wouldn't answer. It was clear that they did not believe John's baptism was from God. Thus, they were rejecting not just John, but Jesus as well, because John's baptism was all about revealing Jesus. And so we have to decide today as well, will we worship the triune God? 
Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and be a part of the kingdom of heaven that he is bringing in Jesus? Or do we want something different? Will we bear fruit in keeping with repentance? Will we be baptized with the Spirit or with fire? This passage sets up the plot line or the conflict that will be carried throughout the book of Matthew. The religious leaders that John the Baptist confronts here are the same ones, along with the people of Israel, who will eventually reject and crucify Jesus. And so this initial positive response, this revival that was happening at the preaching and the baptism of John the Baptist, unfortunately does not end well. They do not heed John's warning and bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And in the end, they experience the fire of Jesus' judgment. Matthew 23, we'll get to this by the end of the year probably, (laughs) sometime down the road. But in Matthew 23, Jesus uses the strongest language to condemn and expose these religious leaders as a brood of vipers, as hypocrites, as blind guides. Why is he so upset? I think we see the heart of why Jesus was upset with these religious leaders in Matthew 23, 13. He says this, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither enter yourselves, nor, you, nor do you allow those who would enter to go in. This is what bothered Jesus so much. They were preventing people from entering the kingdom of heaven. In another exchange with the religious leaders during the week before his death, Jesus says in Matthew 21, 43, Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. Notice that phrase, given to a people producing its fruits. You see the similar language to John here in, chapter, in Matthew chapter 3? When he warns them to bear fruit in keeping with repentance, Jesus ultimately says, you're not bearing the fruit of the kingdom. I'm going to take it away from you and give it to people who will. And so we have to ask again, what does it look like to bear fruit in keeping with repentance? What is the fruit of the kingdom of God? Who are the people given the kingdom because they will bear the fruit of it? These are the questions we want to keep in mind over the next year as we dive deep into the book of Matthew. But this morning I want to just give a brief preview of some of what is coming as this conflict between Jesus and the religious leaders plays itself out. We must understand that Jesus was bringing a different kind of kingdom than the religious, religious leaders and the people wanted. And he brings a different kind of kingdom than I think most people want today as well. The question is, what kind of kingdom do you want? Do you truly want the kingdom of heaven that Jesus is bringing? Will you repent of your ideas and your desires to be a part of what God is doing in Jesus? And so, let's compare Jesus' kingdom with the conflicting kingdom of the Jews, of what the Jews were looking for. And I think at the heart of the conflict between Jesus and the religious leaders was a different way of reading and understanding the Bible, which in Jesus' day was the Old Testament. They had a different view of the Old Testament. The Pharisees and religious leaders thought that the Old Testament, specifically the law, makes us righteous. That was a wrong reading of the law. Jesus came to say that that instead the law shows us 
our sinfulness. The Apostle Paul works this out in Romans. It's almost a whole book, but especially chapters 6 and 7. So it was a different reading of Scripture that was at the heart of this conflict. Now, just as a side note, this is always the base of religious conflicts, isn't it? Especially within Christianity. This was true in Jesus' day, and it will be true until he returns. An accurate and healthy reading and handling of the Bible is essential to entering the kingdom of heaven. Now, certainly the Bible is a challenging book to understand, and not everything in it is, in it is easily understood. There are many things that we can agreeably disagree about that aren't clear. But there are some things that are of the highest importance to get right. And this conflict between Jesus and the religious leaders is one of those things. So let's look at it a little bit. Like the religious leaders, Jesus clearly affirmed the inspiration and the authority of the Old Testament scriptures. Matthew 5, 17 and 18, Jesus says this, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota or a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. So in this, Jesus and the religious leaders were agreed. The Bible is the inspired, authoritative word of God. But a few verses later, Jesus clarifies the difference with the religious leaders. In Matthew 5.20, he says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And then he goes on to talk about the different views of the Old Testament that he has compared to the religious leaders. Here is the clash. See, the religious leaders came up with a religious system from their reading of the Old Testament that made them think that they were righteous. And Jesus tried to help them see they were not reading it correctly and that they were not righteous. They thought they were righteous if they didn't murder someone. And Jesus says, look, it's not just murdering someone, it's if you're, if you're angry, if you hate or despise other people in your heart, you're guilty of murder in your heart, you are not righteous. They thought if they didn't commit adultery, they were righteous. But Jesus says, look, if you lust in your heart for another person, or if you divorce your spouse for frivolous reasons, you are guilty of adultery. You are not righteous. You see, the religious leaders focused on this external keeping of the law, and Jesus focused on the sin inside the heart and the need for spiritual regeneration and a new heart, like Nick talked about in our call to worship. Jesus warned them in Matthew 23, 27, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs. You outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. But instead of humbling themselves at Jesus' words, the religious leaders held on to their self-righteous view and they questioned and condemned Jesus for eating with tax collectors and sinners, the kind of people that they despised as the unrighteous, not worthy of the kingdom. But Jesus tells them in Luke 5.32, he says, look, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. The reason he didn't come to call the righteous is because there are no righteous. That was the point of the law to show us that we are not righteous. 
We're all sinners. So he's calling all of us. But the, the, the religious leaders would not humble themselves to, to, to identify themselves as sinners. So you see, Jesus' kingdom is not for those who trust in themselves that they are good enough. But it is for those who know they could never be good enough in themselves to be a part of the kingdom of heaven. As Jesus says in his first words on the Sermon on the Mount, we're going to look at it in a couple of weeks, Matthew 5, 3, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. These are the ones who will receive the kingdom of heaven, the poor in spirit. Jesus said this in, in, in many, many ways. Another, way, another image he used was of children. He would bring children before him. He'd say, truly, I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. What does it mean to become like children? He goes on to say, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Children are dependent. Children aren't self-sufficient. They need a father. And those who are part of the kingdom recognize this as well. But you see, this was not the kind of people that the Jews, Jewish people were expecting to be in the kingdom. They were expecting that the externally righteous, rich, and politically powerful, that these would be the ones that God was looking for to people his kingdom. This is why it was so shocking, even to Jesus' disciples, when Jesus turned away a rich, young ruler who wanted to know how to inherit eternal life. We're going we're gonna to see this story in several months ahead, but... But this man, this rich young ruler, was the poster boy of pharisaical religion. He was morally upright. He was wealthy. He was given a position of authority. He seemed like the prime example of someone who would enter the kingdom of God. But he comes up to Jesus, and Jesus says, Look, you need to give up all your wealth and all your power and come with nothing and follow me if you want eternal life. And he turned away from Jesus and walked away sad. And we read about this in Matthew chapter 10. After he walked away, Jesus looked around and he said to his disciples, how difficult will it be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God? And the disciples were amazed at his words. The disciples didn't yet understand these things. But Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. And they were exceedingly astonished. You see, this is the conflict right here. This is the kingdoms in conflict right here. And Jesus says, or they said to him, who can be saved? If this guy can't be saved, who can be saved? And Jesus looked at them and he said, with man it is impossible. With man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. You see, Jesus is bringing a different kind of kingdom that is impossible for man to enter. We have to let that sink into our minds. We have to really take a hold of this. It's not by trying harder or doing better that we can enter this kingdom. We are spiritually bankrupt we are utterly unable to enter this kingdom by anything that we can do. It is impossible for us, but it is not impossible for God. That's what he's done in Jesus Christ. That's why Jesus died for our sins to reconcile with God. He did what we could not do. He alone can give us what we need, and this is what he does because of his great love for us. 
He can give us the Holy Spirit so that we can live a new spirit-filled life. Our part is to humble ourselves, acknowledge our total dependence on Him, trust completely in Him, and live by the Spirit's power. As we do this, we will bear the fruit of repentance that John was calling for and live like kingdom people. What does this look like? Paul gives us one of the clearest pictures in Galatians 5. I go back to this a lot in my preaching. You may have noticed when I preach, I almost always talk about Galatians 5. But it's been very helpful to me in my my personal life. It, it, It paints for us a very sharp contrast of the kingdom of man or or what what we live for as human beings naturally and what God is looking for. Notice Galatians 5.16, Paul says, but I say walk by the Spirit, you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Here they are, they're very clear, very straightforward. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, Sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousies, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Same kind of warning that John was giving in in Matthew chapter 3. These desires of the flesh or of the sinful nature are what people often truly desire above the kingdom of God. We see this in our world today. If these desires characterize your life, you're living in a different kingdom. You're living in the kingdom of man in rebellion against God. But if you want something different, it's a good sign that the spirit that Jesus gives is already working in your heart. And as we trust completely in Jesus, we can bear the fruit of the spirit, which is also very clear, which is also very evident Paul goes on to to describe this in Galatians 5.22. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. So what does this look like practically? Let's, Let's just... Take a couple of minutes at the end here to talk about some practical ways we can apply this in our life, practical things we can do to enter the kingdom of heaven and live this spirit-led life. Three quick things. The first is confess and repent of sin. This isn't a one-time thing. It's something that we do. It's a lifestyle. It's something we continue to do in our lives. Don't try to hide or excuse your sin. Beware of hypocrisy pretending to be someone that you are not. Beware of a secret life of sin that few, if anyone, know about but you. Be honest about your sin. Call it what it is. Expose yourself. Be poor in spirit. And I find this really helpful. Use biblical language and avoid language that excuses your sin. Right? Look at the lists in Galatians chapter 5. Use them to analyze your life and your relationships. Over our 26 years of marriage, my wife Lisa and I have had many conflicts, as married couples tend to do. And sometimes we can spend hours excusing or defending or explaining our sinful behavior. We've learned that it is very helpful just to admit 
I was not living by the Spirit and pursuing love, joy, and peace. I was living by the flesh and pursuing conflict, strife, and dissension. I need to confess my sin and repent. <laughs> There's something very clarifying, very helpful, getting to this point and applying biblical language to our actions. See, the world has all kinds of different action, or all kinds of different vocabulary for our sinful behavior, right? And it, it tends to excuse or, or deny or, or say it's something that it's something better than it is. If you're parents, it's good to help your, your, your kids use biblical language to describe their sinful behavior and point to them to their need for Jesus and his spirit. They're not going to learn that at school. Secondly, rely on only on spiritual fruit. As John said, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Don't look to external things to assure you that you belong to the kingdom of heaven. What do I mean by external things? Things like this, baptism, confirmation, church attendance or church membership, a prayer prayed at some time in the past, going forward in a meeting or having an emotional experience, serving or even pastoring a church, giving lots of money, fostering or adopting children. We could go on. These are all good things, and these are things that will characterize spiritually converted people, but they can be done in the flesh and not in the spirit. The Pharisees can do all of these things. They are not indicators of spiritual life. What are indicators of spiritual life? Things like this. Do you truly love God in your heart? Do you love your neighbor? Do you have healthy, loving relationships with those closest to you? Are you at peace within and with others? Do you have joy? Is there a growing inner righteousness and goodness a delight, a true delight to obey God and do his will? Do you have a true humility at the core and have given up all hope of self-righteousness? Have you stopped trying to push yourself forward? Do you have self-control and can you say no to sin? This is the spirit-led life and those who belong to the kingdom of heaven show evidence of repentance and a spirit led life. The third and final point is ask, seek, and knock. See, we have to have a clear understanding of what the kingdom of heaven is, then we have to be honest with ourselves if this is the kingdom that we want or not. But if it is the kingdom that you want, there is no doubt that God will gladly give you this kingdom. He's not trying to withhold it from you. He wants to give it to you. That's why Jesus came. That's why he did what he did. And he taught us this. We're going to see this in Matthew chapter 7. It's also in Luke chapter 11. Jesus says this, I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a, a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, listen to this, how much more will the heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him. 
And these words, ask, seek, and knock, are originally in the present tense. We, we, might, we might better translate them, keep asking, keep seeking, keep knocking. The idea is this ongoing pursuit that is worked out in prayer with God over a lifetime. This should be the primary pursuit of our lives. And if it is our, and if it is our good Father, who loves us beyond what we can imagine, will give us His Spirit. There will be a struggle because our sin runs deep and our sin fights against the Spirit of God, God's work within us, but we will be able to see a change and we can experience the fruits of repentance. And this is the fruit of repentance, a growing relationship of love toward God that spills over into a fruitful Spirit-led life in you personally, in your family, in our church community, and then into the world. That's the fruit that God wants to see. He wants us to be the people who bear this kind of fruit that, 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 that then is a blessing to the world. We can become and fulfill to be, the, be a fruitful channel of blessing to the world. That's what God calls us to do, and that's how God calls us to live. It doesn't happen all at once, and there will be times of failure, but there will be a clearly recognizable pattern of growth away from the deeds of the sinful nature to the fruits of the Spirit. This is the reality of the kingdom of heaven among us. This is the kind of kingdom that Jesus is bringing. This is the kind of kingdom that we pray he will make a reality here among us at Redemption Church. This is the kind of kingdom that, king, that Jesus came to bring to us, and he accomplished this with his body and with his blood. When he said it's impossible for man to enter the kingdom of heaven, it's because we cannot fully pay for all of our sins. We needed Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, the perfect Son of God, to die on our behalf, in our place. And the Bible says that God made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to become sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God. And so that's what happened on the cross, and that's what Jesus asks us to remember as we come to the communion table this morning, to remember his body given for us, to remember his blood shed for us, the new covenant that we have with him in his body and in his blood. And so in a minute.